You're listening to the Author Stories Podcast. Bringing you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Margaret Wine, Sherry Brooks, Sheena Kamal, Matthew Quick, JT Ellison, Walt D. Williams, Brad Ford, Corey, Dr. O, Brandon Sanderson, Robin Mom, Ernest Klein, Jim Butcher, Sherwin Harris. Visit hankgarner.com for archives of all the shows. Today's guest is... Thanks for joining me again for the Author Stories Podcast, where I bring you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Today, I'm super excited to have Karen Tanabe on the show with me. She has an amazing new book. It's called A Woman of Intelligence, and you know th- this is a must-read. Uh, if, if you love historical thrillers, um, you're absolutely going to love this book. Uh, I've loved reading the arc of it, and I know that you are, too. Uh, welcome to the show, Karen. Thank you very much for having me, Hank. And on Pub Day. Yes, yes. Uh, the the book is available everywhere today when you're hearing this. And uh, so, you know, I'm, uh, what a great day to talk about the book. Um, Karen, we begin each show with the same question. And that question is, what is your first memory of wanting to be a writer or storyteller? Ooh, Okay, so I'm a bit of a unique case because my dad worked for the Washington Post book world. So I don't know that I knew there were other jobs, to be honest. Um, I thought that everyone was a writer, (laughs) pretty much. And I was lucky enough to get to meet so many authors as a kid. But I remember the moment for me, really, the I want to be an author moment was when I was nine. I was in fourth grade. And I had, like, a writing workshop in my elementary school. And they gave us, like, paper and a pen and turned out the lights or, like, turned down the lights. And that was it. It was, like, magical. I just knew that I wanted to do it. That That is so awesome that that the um, that you would be so into the book world that it just seemed like what everybody did. That would make perfect sense. Um, did – what? Since your father worked um, in the industry, uh, were you encouraged to uh, to pursue your creative side? Was, was this? I guess what I'm asking is, was it an environment where you're around books and around writers? Uh, but were you encouraged to pursue that path? Did did anyone ever see the storytelling gene in you? Yeah, funnily enough, um, I mean, I grew up in a house of books. Like, it's surprising I wasn't just murdered by books, the amount of books we had. But my dad, like, when I was getting serious about it, like, I was editor of my literary magazine in high school. I won a few English awards. My dad sat me down and goes, don't be a writer. You'll be broken, overworked. Go work in luxury goods. So, uh, Courage. I think it was like a, a here is the reality of it, you know, and he wasn't exactly wrong, but he also like gave me a book every day and, you know, took me to book readings. And so it was like, let me expose you to this world as much as possible, but let me caution you about the terrible paychecks and the even worse hours. <laughs> while while all the while bringing you deeper into this world. <laughs> right, exactly. So it's like uh he but it's not like he sugarcoated it, let's say that. So, you know, as you 
as you grow older and uh, you finish high school and start looking at college and, and trying to figure out what it, you know, what path you're going to take in life, wh- what was what was your thinking, you know, when you when you're a young adult and, and thinking, uh, you know, this is what I'm going to pursue for the rest of my life. What, what was your thinking? Did you were you thinking that you were going to become a novelist or um, I, I know that you you spent time in journalism. Did did you start thinking of journalism as a way to scratch that itch, uh, if you will, while you know having a respectable job? Yeah, I you know I never wanted a respectable job. To be honest with you, I wanted like when I started looking at colleges, I knew I wanted to go to a liberal arts college. You know, my SAT scores were so skewed that it looked like two people took them. Like it was really, really pretty obvious where I was stronger. So I knew I wanted to go to sort of an East Coast liberal arts school with a good, you know, writing program. But I wanted to be like a novelist, a poet, a playwright. I never wanted to be a journalist. I I didn't want to really deal with facts. And it wasn't until after school that I was like, oh, I might need to make some money that I, I went into journalism. But it was always with an end goal in mind, which was fun. I love that you didn't want to be bothered with the facts. And, and you there's, know, prob- there's still... probably a, a joke in there about, you know, media. and But we'll just leave that alone. I mean, um, you know, I used to interview lots of people and they'd give me these terrible quotes. And I was always so tempted to just make them better. But that <laughs> seems wrong. So, <laughs> but I was tempted. That is so funny. So, um. So, Karen, what was it that brought you back around to writing fiction? Uh, you know, I know that your heart was always there, um, but what was that first kind of story idea that that made you think, uh, you know, that this is something bigger than that? This is something big enough that I can chase to the end. Yeah. Well, right after college, I lived abroad for ooh, four or five years and I wrote a book in my early 20s about a young woman living in Paris and I thought it was amazing I mean I was definitely wrong but I thought it was amazing (laughs) and my dad because he like had all these connections I was like hey what book agent should I send this to and he said send it to Sandy Dykstra who he knew well but she was like a giant literary agent like she had her own agency she represented Amy Tan um so I did. I sent it because I had that, you know, just courage of youth. Sure. And she was like, wow, this is no, she was gonna say, well, this is bad. She was like, thank you for your submission. We don't want this at all, but you're a good writer, keep going. Um, so I kind of took that as a like, oh, you know, I, encouragement. I didn't go submit it other places. I just kind of sat on it. And had that dream in my back pocket. And then I went into journalism because I was poor and needed a job. And then when I was a journalist, I was freelancing for the Huffington Post in like maybe 2007 and eight. I went, I wrote a piece that did really well. And a literary agent reached out to me after I wrote it. So, and she wanted me to write nonfiction. And then finally, I kind of convinced her that maybe I could do fiction instead. So what, after that point, what was the, the novel, your first novel that got published? What- yeah. So I tried writing nonfiction. I wanted to write a book about DC scandals, but Hank, I really knew three. And after that I was out. 
And she was like, find new scandals. And I was like, it's just not as easy as it sounds. Um, so I was going to like hole up at the Hay Adams or something and stalk people. But I decided I'd get arrested. And instead, I took a job at Politico. And it was kind of the early days of Politico, 2009, 10. And it was nuts. It was kind of like, it was a time where they called Politico the Hunger Games of Journalism. And I had kept in touch with this agent and we were having lunch and I told her about it. And she said, you know, that's what you should write a book about. Make it like the Devil Wears Prada about Politico. And that ended up being my very first book, The List. Wow. Um, did it, I find this you, novel writing is, is such an interesting um, artistic expression, it, it, especially when you think com, think about um, the commercial aspects of it, because yeah. there there are lots of artistic expression that, you know, you may work on something for a month uh, and and that is not um, the best you can do. And then you go back and you work on something else. And, and um, a novel writing is something that that you can work on for a year or two years or longer and then that thing that you created just get rejected by everybody and and you start over from scratch and you just try again um yeah. it, what is it that drives you um you know when when you create something and you know that that is not maybe the thing that that is needed in the world at the time what keeps what forces you or draws you back to start a new project all over again yeah uh yeah it's a it's a punishing industry i mean it really is i think for me and i'm sure a lot of authors say this like i do just truly love to write like i love there's no satisfaction in life like i get from writing a good sentence you know like some people are really story people i mean i like crafting stories but i love words like just knowing i wrote a good sentence or a great sentence I get kind of a high from it. Um, so I think just that that need for that feeling, I keep going back and I keep going back. And I have to say, like, maybe because I was a journalist, I'm not that precious about things. If people tell me enough that something's bad, like, I trust them. It's bad, you know? I'm not someone who's like, no, but this is amazing. I'm the only one who thinks so, but it is. Like, you know, usually the the crowd is right and you're wrong. Um, and I always want to put things out there that are good. So, you know, well, like if I have a first draft that gets massacred, I'm okay with it because I know like our end goals are all the same. Um, that said, you know, my very first book that I submitted that was rejected by Sandy Dykstra, I have no desire to ever look at that thing again. I'm sure it's <laughs> horrible. <laughs> like I, I like, can't even tell you where the file is. But, um, you know, I think I think being a novelist, a career novelist so much of it is like the hustle i mean so much of it is just the willingness to be like you know what you're right this is bad let's just put it in a drawer and start something else and start something else and and learning more about the industry and what people want to read and i think you do have to kind of play it smart that way and you have to have a a thick skin yeah a woman of intelligence is your sixth novel um it is my sixth novel yeah over those six novels can you look back and start uh, picking out some things that would be hallmarks of uh, a Karen uh, Tanabe novel? What what is it that that 
that defines your niche in the writing world? Yeah, I love this question. Um, I think what defines my books, and there's a few little exceptions, but most of the time it's rich people behaving badly, but it's not the usual rich people. It's not like these white wasps in Connecticut, you know, like it's not your typical cast of characters. I write very diverse books. I like you know, lots of different people to have the money and lots of different people to be doing the bad things. And uh, that's sort of what I've done from the beginning and what I hope to keep doing. I was always like a kid attracted to books about wealth. I don't know what this says about me, Hank, I don't. But I always liked reading kind of these aspirational novels. But the people never looked like me. Um, and I think that's something I've, I've tried to change with my writing. One of those books, uh, The Gilded Years, uh, has kind of taken on a life of its own and and has, you know, that that sometimes does for a novel becomes kind of bigger than than the thing that you create. And it's going to be a movie. Um, what is that like when when someone um, takes one of your works and and just says, you know, that this is uh this is different from everything else that's out there. This this needs to be interpreted in a new way and seen by a new audience. And like, what is that feeling like? Yeah, well, it's really exciting. I think, um, you know, I think if your project is taken by someone who you don't have a lot of faith in, like you might worry. But of course, at the end of the day, like you can say yes or no. So hopefully we all say yes to people we trust. Um, the Gilded Years was optioned by Reese Witherspoon. So obviously... That was a dream uh, come true, but it didn't happen right away. So The Gilded Years came out in 2016. Um, it's a story about the first black graduate of Vassar College. I also went to Vassar. And when it came out in 2016, we had a lot of movie interest. And I was like, you know, mentally buying my Ferrari. Um, just kidding. They're terrible for the planet. I would never buy Ferrari. But mentally buying something. And then kind of all the Hollywood offers kind of went away. And I was like, ooh, where did those all go? <laughs> Can we get them back, please? Um, so I kind of just like kept going. I mean, I'm not a person who's in it for TV or movies. I mean, it's exciting and lovely when it happens. But if I want to write movies, I would just write movies, you know? Um, so after that noise quieted I just kept writing I wrote another book I didn't really think about the movie tv stuff anymore and then one day my agent called and she was like are you sitting down and I was at a rest stop on I-95 so about as as uh unglamorous as it can get and she was like Reese Witherspoon just called us and wants to option the Gilded Years so that was really exciting because if one of those deals had gone through the year before it wouldn't the rights wouldn't have been available to sell to, to Reese Witherspoon. So that sort of seems like it went the path that it should. Um, and I'm, I think what she's doing in Hollywood is amazing. I'm really excited to see uh, what they do with this project. Absolutely. Looking for a tool to help you visualize your story before the drafting begins? PlotPens is cloud-based and optimized for any device. There's nothing to download. From the new writer who isn't sure how to tell their story to the veteran who can increase their productivity dramatically, we've had experienced writers lay out a detailed structure 
for several novels in a series in a matter of a few days. The app takes you through four steps of the process, the concept or logline. Make sure you have a solid concept that you can keep coming back to throughout the process. The outline, 12 beats and three acts, each has a description of what should be happening with examples. The board, 40 cards. We take the 12 beats and add sub-beats to those, breaking it down even further and being very specific about what should go into each. These also have examples and descriptions. Right. We take those 40 cards and turn them into a to-do list. For a 50,000 word book, it's about two cards per chapter roughly. We have a beautiful editor built into the app. You can export your manuscript to a PDF anytime with the click of a button. Let Plot Pins help you visualize your writing project. Use code HANK10 to get 10% off Plot Pins. PlotPins.com Authors, I have a fantastic new service to tell you about. It's called PubSite. PubSite is a service to help you build your very own website, your home on the web, where you can promote your work and give your fans a place to connect with you. PubSite is a website platform that allows every author, regardless of budget, to have a great-looking professional website developed by the book marketing professionals at FSB Associates. PubSite is the new easy-to-use DIY website builder developed specifically for books and authors. Whether you're an author of one book or 20 or a small publisher, PubSite allows you to build, design, and most importantly, update your website pain-free. No need to be dependent on a designer or webmaster to make a small but costly change to your website. Save the money and do it yourself. PubSite is the best platform for authors because it's a book-centric platform. PubSite was built just for authors and small publishers. Every design, feature, and layout is book-centric. They have customized designs for you to use. It's easy to build. No coding or HTML is necessary to create a stunning, professional-looking website with all the features you want. Get a custom domain name, yourname.com. It's simple to update. You can add all of your books, add a blog and a book tour, sell from any retailer, manage your email list and social media, and even do e-commerce. Build your website with a 14-day free trial, then pay just $19.99 per month, which includes hosting. And we offer packages starting at $499 to set up the website for you. Pub-Site.com, the place to help authors find their home on the web. Um, and, and that has to be a, a game changer for, for you as a writer and for your career. But going forward from that point, does that, does that change you? Uh, does it change your creative process, knowing that, you know, this, this other project is now taking on a new life and uh, uh does it make you think about storytelling any differently um you know yes and no if, so that was the only book i ever wrote based on a real person but it was a person who was very unknown at the time um you know when i when i started writing about her anita hemmings she didn't have a wikipedia page there were three articles ever written on her on google so it was sort of writing about a person who's a a public person in a way, but not well known, and that I felt close to because she went to my alma mater. 
Um, and I thought it should be a story that should be more known. So I did for a while think like, hmm, you know, should I be writing more about real people? Like, is this the path I should go down? I mean, it's obviously been a sort of a trend um, in historical fiction of late, which I think is a good trend because a lot of the times it's about women who deserve their place in the sun. So I thought about it, but at the end of the day, like, I'm not saying I'm ruling it out. I mean, I might do it again, but I do love starting a novel just from scratch. And I think, um, you know, the Hollywood uh, machine made me think like, okay, maybe these are easier to sell. But in the end of the day, it's not exactly like all I want to do. That said, I did talk to a, a writer, a TV writer, when I was writing my last book, 100 Sons, which is set in 1930s Indochina, uh, Vietnam now. And he was like, well, tell me about your new project. And I was like, oh, it's this really interesting book set in Indo- Indochine 1930s. And he was like, why would you say anything there? You'll never option it. And I was like, wow, that's a, that's a harsh thing to say. And he was like, set everything in New York. And I was like, no, I don't want to only set everything in New York. Like, I love writing about, you know, I love writing stories set around the world. I'm a first generation American. Like, you know, my family's all around the world and I'm a total globetrotter. And then, of course, what do I do, Hank? I set my next book in New York. So um, <laughs> let's not say I'm not heeding advice, but I, I hope I'm not like changing too much because of because of the the call of, of Hollywood. Karen, you you said that um, you love that moment and with the Gilded Years as the exception, because it's it's based on a real person. But yeah. uh, all of your other works, uh, you you talked about having that moment where you just create it out of thin air and 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 the story just comes from wherever stories come from. Um, but I, I love to to explore the beginnings of things. And, you know, at one moment, um, a woman of intelligence doesn't exist in any form or fashion. And then either you start thinking about a character and she kind of walks on the stage of your imagination or you start thinking of a plot point or some historical fact and then characters start to populate that as you cast them in your mind and then in in some way a woman of intelligence exists at that point and and then you know you do the work of uncovering the story from that but what is that first moment of inspiration for a book like for you does it begin with a character does it begin with a some historical fact that you have stumbled upon or or a plot point? What is that first moment of inspiration? Yeah, the way you put it is so beautiful, Hank. I like don't want to like burst that beautiful bubble, like the, the reality of it. Um, I just want to stay there. It's so nice. It sounds so nice. Um, well, I'll I'll give one example of another book, and I'll go into the woman of intelligence. So, The Diplomat's Daughter, which was my fourth book, and is a historical fiction book started very much like the way you said. So um, my father is from Japan, I, but he was born in Japan. He didn't come to America until the 60s, so his family was never interned here. But I knew a lot of people, uh, Japanese-Americans, who were in internment camps, um, you know, good friends of my parents growing up. And when George Takei put on his play Allegiance, his Broadway play, my husband and I were talking about it because I wanted to go see it. And my husband is from Nebraska. He's of German origin. And he asked me, 
were the Germans ever interned or just the Japanese? And I was like, oh, no, the Germans were never interned. It was just like a racial thing. It was, you know, really racism that, that sparked uh, internment. And then I was like, actually, I, I don't know that I'm right. And I Googled it and I was wrong. It was like a much smaller uh, population of Germans that were interned than Japanese Americans. But I, I got really interested in it because I was like, wow, you know, I know more about internment, uh, domestic internment during World War II than most people. And I didn't know this. So then like that little conversation we had was the spark for my whole book. Um, so that's like often how it happens for me. But with a limited intelligence, Hank, let me tell you, it started very differently. I was going to write a book about female coders during World War II, sort of inspired by real women, but um, computer coders, but not like exactly about them, just inspired by them. And then I was in the Flatiron building where St. Martin's Press used to be in a very beautiful office about to pitch this book with my editor. And I just had like a 180. I was like, I don't want to write this book. I don't want to write anything that has to do with this book. I have two little kids. I hate my life. And I want to write a motherhood rage book. And it was sort of like just spontaneous. I was just like, I don't want to write this book. I want to write an angry mother book. And then I was like, I want her to be a murderer. And I want her to kill everybody. <laughs> and my editor was like, wow, that's a terrible idea. But basically... Let me introduce you to my therapist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> so they were all like, that's a departure for you. Um, but it was like, that. this book was just born out of like personal rage. I was like, I have so much rage as a new mom, as a woman juggling all this stuff, and I like have to put it on paper. And then a conversation with my editor that was a little more sane. She was like, okay, like when else did women have it really badly? Like the fifties and maybe she could be something else. That's not a murderer. Like maybe she could be a spy. So then we had this whole conversation. And then through another conversation with a friend, I learned about a real woman named Elizabeth Bentley, who was a, a, a spy during world war II for the Russians. And then that kind of put the story together, but let's just say it was not my usual path to storytelling. And it was not, it was not a very poetic path. It was kind of a, an angry path. But, you know, the, the best stories come out of deep emotion. Uh, and, you know, whatever you can use to connect to, to some, uh, you know, raw emotion, usually, in a lot of cases, uh, you know, brings out some really great art. Yeah, I agree. I just didn't want to have to really live it personally. <laughs> yeah, yeah. None of us do I like this to read about other, other people's novels. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but no, like you know, after I had kids, I wrote one thing on kids for the Washington Post, and people were like, "Oh, you should write more on it." And I said, "You know what? I'm never going to write about it again. I don't like it enough." And uh, then, of course, I write a whole book about motherhood, but it's about not liking it enough. So there you go. It came full circle. <laughs> So, so tell me about the the character of Katerina. Um, what, where did, how did she start developing? You, and I, I know you had all these kind of uh, strong emotions that you were working through, but but how did those things, you know, come to embody this character? Yeah. So when I sort of settled on having a spy as a mother who is also a spy, I started talking to people about 
female spies. And a friend of mine from Vassar said, oh, have you ever heard of Elizabeth Bentley? And I said, no, I've never heard of, of Elizabeth Bentley. And she was like, well, look her up because she was Vassar class of 1930. And she went to Vassar, went to Columbia, and then joined the Communist Party and then spied for the Soviets um, from 1938 to 1945. So I was like, wow, that's super interesting. You know, felt close to home because, again, um, alumni from college. And, and I started reading her autobiography, biographies about her, and I found her world so fascinating. I, I just love the idea of a female spy. Like, I, there's something about it that just, it's like a woman playing in a boy's world at that time you know and the fact that they get to that point and the risks they're willing to take really intrigued me and then I thought you know I'm not going to set it at the exact same time I don't want to write another World War II book the 50s interest me a lot more and and I thought I could use her story as a basis for for my own story so it's definitely inspired by her story and you know her Soviet lover at the time inspires one of the characters too but I kind of combined that with like my motherhood rage which sort of seems like an odd combination but according to Kirkus it works very well the um how did you start um what what sort of research went into um kind of the realities of of the the way the spy uh, agencies worked at, at that time and kind of what the 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 feeling of the landscape was um you know uh i i was alive during the cold war uh, i was yeah. you know I, I was born in the early 70s um so but that that was a a different period um you know the this the time period of the of of a woman of intelligence that it's so well um constructed and it feels like we can just walk right into that world and and feel all of the feelings what did you do to get kind of connected to this time period and and some of the realities of it yeah well thank you um you know so i knew i wanted to do the 50s i wasn't exactly sure when in the 50s i wanted to do so I started reading about the 50s and and I settled on 1954 because it was the year they had the televised Army McCarthy hearings. And it was, you know, I think America had really been fed this line like, oh, you know, let's after the war, let's sacrifice for our country. Like, you know, women staying in the kitchen is the opposite of the Soviet women. And, you know, there's a bit of a witch hunt for communists but people seem like you know generally on board with this that communism's bad but the mccarthy hearings i think started to really tip the balance where people were like okay you know senator mccarthy is really out of line and this is too much it's a witch hunt you know effectively so i decided because of that um those hearings and the fact that they were televised and that my characters could be watching them, I settled on 1954. And I also think it was a, a really interesting year um, for race in America, for women in America. Um, you, know, you know, it was the year of Brown versus Ford. And I just thought that would be a, the, the year to settle on in the 50s. But then you kind of start world building, you know, you're like, okay, 
I know the 50s, but what about New York in the 50s? And what do these people's lives look like in the 50s? So I think I sort of started big and then went smaller and smaller and smaller. Down to the point where you're like, okay, where would she change subways? Like, you know, what shoes is someone wearing? And and it's this world building that really is so fun. Do you, are you a uh, a planner um, or are you um, more of a pantser, as we like to say? <laughs> you know the ending from the beginning or are you con- uncovering the story as you go? I, you know, I'm, I, I go back and forth. I will outline the book, like, chapter by chapter. That's as plan as I get. But then, I, of course, I, like, change everything. But okay. I do have an initial, like, chapter by chapter outline. I call it paint by numbers. It's sort of like a security blanket. You, like, convince yourself that you know where you're going. Um, and then you don't do it. But at least you had a plan in the beginning. Do you think the the tricking yourself into thinking that you have a plan um, does that uh, you know cut down the the in uh, cut down the the inhibitions that um, uh, that prevent you for like I guess what I'm saying is when you have a plan even if you don't stick to the plan do you do you have the confidence and the freedom to let the story go where it will without worrying about it because, you know, well, well, it doesn't matter if I do this, I've got a plan. Uh, you know, I can always <laughs> go back to this if this doesn't work out. Is, is that freeing? Yeah, I think it is a little bit. I mean, I always thought I would be like a total Jack Kerouac type that just like, you know, was heavily under the influence and wrote whatever, whenever. Um, but turns out that just does not work for me. It sounds super fun, but I can not do it i have to be like sober the room has to be quiet and i have to be semi-organized um and i think it is like this like oxygen tank you know like if you're summiting everest like a million other things could go wrong but like the oxygen tank makes you feel better i love it well if you want to know how this story ends and (laughs) and go on this adventure uh that karen uh, has has skillfully woven for us in A Woman of Intelligence. It's available everywhere today when you're hearing this. We're going to put links to it in the show notes of this episode where you can grab it from Amazon, uh, whether you would uh, prefer to read on your Kindle or read the hardcover and turn the pages yourself, or uh, it's available in audiobook. Uh, also, Karen, have you have you heard any of the, the audiobook yet? Yes, I have, and it's great. You know, what I do... Uh... Um, when the book is published is I can't stand looking at it anymore as probably most others can't but I love to listen to it because it's almost like someone else wrote it and then you'll like laugh and you'll be like wait I wrote that this is great and it's really (laughs) it's a different experience it's it's really fun for sure for sure Uh, we'll put links to all those in the show notes uh, where you can go grab or go visit your local bookstore um, bookstores are opening back up all over the country. Go support local bookstores. Um, Karen, if people are uh, intrigued by you and your story and want to dig into all the great stuff that you do, where can they find you online? Yeah, so the joys of having a unique name. Everything is Karen Tanabe at Karen Tanabe, KarenTanabe.com. It's Karen with an I, so K-A-R-I-N-T-A-N-A-B-E. Fantastic. We'll put links to all those in the show notes as well. Karen, this has been so much fun chatting today. Congratulations on book launch day for A Woman of Intelligence. 
We're going to send everyone to see you. Uh, thank you so much for taking time to come on the show. Thank you, Hank. This was such a joy. I really appreciate it. Wargate Books presents Hit and Fade, Forgotten Ruin, Book Two, by Jason Ansbach and Nick Cole. Narrated for you by Christopher Ryan Grant. Chapter One. The army of the dead walked straight into our ambush east of Fortress Hawthorne. That's what the fob is called now, Fortress Hawthorne. Despite it being officially known as Forward Operating Base Hawthorne, as was originally intended when the 50 detachments of various special operations groups came forward through time from Area 51, a one-way mission to save Western civilization from a rampaging nanoplague destroying the very fabric of said civilization. Apparently, we overshot the temporal insertion point and stuck the landing. Sorta. About 10,000 years too late. Said civilization is now basically something straight out of Tolkien, or Dungeons and Dragons which we've all now gotten a lot more familiar with thanks to our resident expert and fledgling hedge wizard, the infamous P.F.C. Kennedy. But the Rangers just call it the FOB. The first of our explosives to ruin the leading elements of the Army of the Dead advancing on us, Claymore Mines, the recaptured forge back at Hawthorne, had cranked out in the weeks after we'd retaken it from King Triton, were fired by Ranger Sergeant Kang down there with the scouts and Captain Knifehand's assaulters. It was close to midnight when the front rank of bony warriors, carrying rotting shields and spears, eyes glowing malevolently in the deep night mist, advanced into our ambush, only to get ruined by the daisy-chained Claymores' sudden eruption. Above us, a cloud-shrouded moon cast a wan yellow light over the battlefield. The night was hot, and spring was coming on full now. The pilots who'd gotten us here in the grounded C-17 back at Ranger Alamo, using their meteorology skills, had guessed it was going to be a long, hot summer ahead of us, and an early one at that. But there was a cold shiver in the dark on your exposed skin that you couldn't quite explain when you saw the dead advancing rank after rank. The bone warriors carrying spear and shield. Other, darker creatures barely seen. The lower areas of the earth were graveyard cool and misty, so maybe that was it. Still... The brutal, unrelenting cold of our almost last stand back at Ranger Alamo was gone now. But not the horrors. There wasn't a night that some ranger didn't wake up out of a tormented sleep, breathing heavy, sidearms scanning the dark and looking for orcs and ogres to ventilate. I was sweating in the hour leading up to the attack, despite the night and the mist. Kurtz had us humping hard to get the 240 and all its ammo up to the top of a small hill that overlooked the area where we'd channel the advancing echelons of the Army of the Dead into further fun and games the rangers had planned at a bend in a riverbed. If the approaching Army of the Dead continued on their current course track, they'd enter it for a brief period. It was decided by the captain we'd kill them there. 
and I was sweating. Not because of fear. No, not at all. Firing, whispered Sergeant Kang over the comm as he detonated the mines. And eight daisy-chained claymores spat thousands of steel balls all across the front line of what even I was still finding it hard to believe I was seeing through my night vision device. Skeletons. Warrior skeletons. Ancient warriors like something out of the Bronze or Iron Ages. Worked breastplates of molded plate or rotting scales. Green and tarnished stamped with the markings of fabled armies fallen in battles long, long ago. Leather cuirasses on some, rotting boots, helms with broken horns, missing teeth, tattered leather kilts, beads and charms dangling from bone wrists, enigmatic holy signs and primal torques black with grave dirt or from a funeral pyre long ago on some forgotten battlefield far from here draped about the spine where the throat should be. Where it rises to connect to a bone-white skull that seems filled with malevolent purpose and diabolical intelligence. Malignantly so. Walking skeletons like something out of a Ray Harryhausen clay model Sinbad epic from the 1960s. Above, the sliver of moon gave enough light to strengthen our NVGs, making the night vision devices perform exceptionally well as we sprang our trap and watched the advancing elements get rocked by our initial high-explosive opening bid in the game we were about to play. The air was still and hot in the moments before the fight began as we lay there in the tall, sharp grass, waiting for it all to go down. I was thinking a hot cup of coffee would be nice about now. Except my canteen only had cold coffee I'd brewed during the long, silent, and windy afternoon of preparation. Still, I was happy knowing I had some, rather than none. Authors, if you're looking for a partner to help ensure that your book is the best it can possibly be, look no farther than Pico's House. Crystal and her staff make a conscious effort to be critical, yet courteous. They also strive to make the business side of things run smoothly so that you can rest easy knowing that your manuscript is in capable hands. Whether you need beta reading, developmental editing, a manuscript critique, line editing, copy editing, or proofreading, Pico's House is the one-stop shop for you. Check them out today at picoshouse.com to get started.